and we're greatly honoured to have Professor John Lennox back again, but to speak to us on a very different subject, that of artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. Does, does humanity have a future? So, uh, John, lovely to have you back. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics emeritus at Oxford University and a fellow in mathematics and the philosophy of science at Green Templeton College in Oxford. He's also an associate fellow of the Said Business School, Oxford University, and teaches at the Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme. He's particularly interested in the interface of science, philosophy, and theology, and his many books include Against the Flow uh, on the Book of Daniel, <clears throat> Seven Days That Divide the World on Genesis 1 and all the controversies there, Gunning for God on the New Atheism, Stephen Hawking and God, which is a response to Hawking's grand design, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? And if you were with us earlier last year, you'll know his one of his latest books is Where is God in a Coronavirus World? That, uh, that audio and video is still available on our website. But most recently uh, is uh, 2084, which I've got here and I've had the pleasure of reading. And that's really the subject of today. Now, uh, John has debated a number of prominent atheists, including Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Peter Singer as well. And we'll give you links to his websites and books after the seminar when we write to each one of you. So keep those questions coming in. And uh, John, if we could come to you, uh, first of all, we know you've got uh, interest and expertise in lots of areas, but uh, why AI? Uh, aren't you going a bit off piste here? What, what, what led you to get interested in the subject and, and write this book? Well, let me first say how delighted I am to be doing something for ICMDA, which is an organization that I have held in very high esteem for many years and have actually traveled, as you know, with a team of doctors and nurses and medical professionals to um, <clears throat> far reaches of the former Soviet Union. So thank you very much for inviting me. Why I got involved in this is that I've always been interested in the implications of science and in particular computer science. And of course, we're all aware that there's a great deal of hype and we'll come to that around quasi science fiction scenarios about the future, about robots taking over our jobs and all this kind of thing. But where I particularly got interested is that as a Christian, I am very interested indeed in what human beings really are from a biblical perspective. And the artificial intelligence scenarios, some of them, actually raise very deep questions as to what a human being is. And that got me very interested. And I was invited to address a group of Christian leaders in London about artificial intelligence and the Genesis narrative about human beings being made in the image of God. I first said no, and then they persuaded me to change my mind. And as I started working on it, I saw that this required 
a lot of investigation because of its vast implications. And out of that came the book 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. And I felt I wanted to write it firstly to demystify artificial intelligence, point out that it's doing and will do some very good things indeed. But then also to use that as a springboard to have a look at issues, particularly ethical issues that are raised by artificial intelligence. And of course, medical people know that it is very relevant to the medical profession, both from the perspective of the technologies, but also for the implications of our understanding of our own humanity. Now, I wonder, John, if we could just step back first of all and uh, define our terms and, and look at the whole scope of this. C can you just walk us through the different kinds, different types of artificial intelligence that, that are coming into consideration? Well, as a mathematician, of course, I put a high premium on definitions and artificial intelligence comes essentially in two forms. There's narrow AI and there's general AI. So let's take narrow AI first. Narrow AI essentially is a, a computer-based system that is a huge database and the computer is programmed with an algorithm that is a mechanical process for recognizing some kind of pattern. Let me give an example. In this COVID time, lung diseases are particularly important. So we'll imagine our database to be of a million x-rays of people's lungs. The best radiologists in the world label those x-rays with the diseases that they represent. And then I get a problem with my lungs and I go to the hospital, the x-ray is taken and it's fed into this system, which very rapidly compares the image of my lungs with the million others. And it will put out a diagnosis. And at the moment, in connection with lungs and many other diseases, the diagnosis is likely to be considerably more accurate than I would simply get from going to my local radiologist. Now, the important thing to emphasize here is the system only simulates intelligence, hence the word artificial. Uh, there's a wonderful paper written some years ago by a pioneer in this field who's also a Christian believer. And the title of his paper is the artificial, the word artificial in the phrase artificial intelligence is real. So we're only simulating intelligence. What do I mean by that? I mean that normally it will take an intelligent radiologist to recognize what's wrong with my lungs looking at the x-ray. The intelligence of the radiologist is being simulated because the intelligence of many radiologists has been programmed into this machine. The machine is no more intelligent than a brick, but it simulates intelligence. The other thing we need to emphasize is this. 
artificial intelligence normally does one single thing and one thing alone that normally requires human intelligence to do it. So that's the first sort, and we can come to examples in a moment. Artificial general intelligence is the attempt to create a super intelligence in one of two main ways. The first is to enhance existing human beings by enhancement drugs, by genetic engineering, by biotechnology, by cyborgs, that is implanting various mechanisms and fusing human beings with uh, technology to create a super intelligence. So we're beginning to get towards the sci-fi scenarios. The second methodology is the idea that we can somehow preserve the contents of our brains by uploading them eventually onto something that does not have a biological base, but is rather based on, say, silicon or something like that. So that's making a super intelligence essentially from scratch. So you get those two scenarios. And of course, they are the scenarios which everybody's interested in because they're highly controversial. They make good films like The Matrix and all those robot films, and they raise specters in people's minds. Just to say we're very far from making any of them, but they recognize they represent a significant threat, significant enough to some of the world's leading scientists warning about the dangers. So those are the two kinds. And AGI, as its name suggests, is where we create something that can do everything human beings can do, but do it much better, much faster. Okay. So let's just hold ourselves back slightly before we dive into the possible threats and the more sinister implications of this. And uh, let's just think about narrow AI, first of all. And uh, the, can you talk us through a little bit about the way that it's shaping medicine and dentistry in particular, you know, new drugs, robotic operations we've heard about, organ imaging you've mentioned, diagnosis, health apps, uh, this kind of thing. Uh, what tell us tell us what's uh, good about it that we can rejoice in? Well, I, I think we can really rejoice in things analogous to uh, diagnostic technologies that pull together expertise from around the world, so that in that sense is done remotely. And secondly, using the vast knowledge that is assembled in hospitals throughout the world. And as you say, one of its uses has been in developing vaccines for COVID. And you can virtually name any disease, particularly lung diseases, heart diseases, and so on, that are amenable to this kind of technology, where there's some kind of imaging, there, there's a specific database that can be created. But there are other areas of medicine that I find are perhaps not so well known, but very impressive indeed. There is work being done at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology 
uh, on what's called affective computing. And that, that work is done by using facial recognition technology on autistic children and also on children that are likely to have experience of fits. And the problem is predicting the fits because they are life-threatening when they occur. And the work of Rosalind Picard, who actually is a Christian doctor in this field that she has created for herself, is, is well nigh spectacular because they're already saving lives. So uh, there's another example. And I like to encourage young, scientifically gifted Christians to go into this field. Why? Because there's so much to be done for people that can straddle physics, maths, computer science, and medicine. Mm. There's so much positive that can be done. The downsides are clear, but we need people actually at the frontier of the research and therefore credibly working to help their fellow men and women, but also able to understand from inside the massive ethical problems that are raised by many of these things. And as you know, in medicine, one of the huge problems is the, the distribution of medical equipment. And again, AI is being used simply because of the huge complexity of this kind of thing. Now, in your book, John, you talk a lot about the more the, or the applications outside medicine of narrow AI as well. Uh, uh, you talk about digital assistants, Siri and Alexa, that we're all very familiar with, translation or things like autonomous vehicles, applications in advertising and industry. Do you want to just give us a sketch of that too? I, I'm anxious in this to emphasize the good that is coming from the appropriate use of technology before we go into the more sinister aspects of it. Well, we haven't said anything bad yet. <laughs> one of the things that, <laughs> the, the striking thing is that one of the things I find extremely useful, of course, is ordering books and, and getting information. And we're all familiar with the fact that if we order a book a few days later, there'll be a pop up on our screen saying people who read that book are interested in this book. And often it's a very sensible suggestion. And how that works is that the device, the smartphone or the tablet or computer is harvesting all the information and assigning it to my name so that there's a machine learning algorithm that in that sense, it's not actually learning because it's not intelligent, but it's processing my interest so that it doesn't uh, send me a book on a subject that I'm not likely to be interested in. And that can be very useful if you're doing research, uh, bringing up all kinds of papers and stuff. We think nothing of typing a concept, some obscure medical word, uh, like COVID-19 into the computer and getting all kinds of recent papers and research. There's an AI system in behind that. And we find it extremely useful indeed. So there's another very positive use. But that brings us nearer uh, the dangers, which are virtually obvious. 
Yes, and you talk in your book about surveillance capitalism. I thought it was an interesting concept. And yes, it is. It's the whole idea that, that there are very strong commercial interests. What, what data does um, Google or Microsoft or Amazon or, um, a whole, or, or, or Facebook hold on us? What are they doing with it? How, how will they possibly use it in the future, possibly against us as well as for us? Well, uh, one of our problems very is about that. We, we've had a, a massive shift in our own ICMDA community from people moving out of WhatsApp into, into Signal or some other thing. So uh, tell us about tell us about the, the threats and dangers there. Well, the exactly. Well, let's start with WhatsApp because people realize that uh, they may put adolescent ideas on WhatsApp and then find those things being brought up in an interview for a job and they, and they don't get the job because of it. And the basic idea is this, we are being tracked at all levels. And the irony of it all is we're doing it voluntarily. I don't switch my smartphone off all the time. So what is happening is that all the information, and it may go beyond what we realize, information about purchases, but then there's the geophysical information, where I was, who did I meet with, because other smartphones are sending out signals, and who knows how much is being seen on the smartphone camera or being listened to, because we now realize that these things may be listening to us even when they're switched off, apparently, from our perspective. Now, Susanna Zuboff is uh, an emerita professor from MIT again, and she's written this fascinating book called Surveillance Capitalism. And it, it's a very large book, but it's being taken very seriously because the point she's making is all this information way beyond what we intended to part with is being sold on and has become part of a billion dollar industry, billions of dollars without our permission. So in that sense, it represents an invasion of privacy. And WhatsApp has demonstrated just how it is being used. At the very beginning, I realized this was happening and I never got a WhatsApp account, nor do I have a Facebook one for the same reason, giving information freely, but information that can be exploited for commercial purposes. Now, we live with some of that. When we buy a book on Amazon, we are agreeing really to become part of that. But what Susanna Zuboff in this book is pointing out, it goes way beyond anything that uh, we can imagine. And it's creating serious problems. I think a lot of people are concerned about the immense power these companies have. If we go back 20 years, the top 10 companies in the world were all banks. But now they are the fang companies, Facebook, Amazon, Alibaba, Apple, Netflix, Google, uh, Tencent, and, and so on. And so all this information about us is being held in fewer and fewer hands, and those hands are connected 
passing things on from one uh, company or subsidiary to another. And I think that's a real anxiety that, that people have. And these companies seem to have immense power, don't they? Is it just this week we've learned that Facebook is stopping Australians accessing uh, websites through, through it and, and so on. So That's should, exactly should right. About, about this going forward, because, uh, of course, we're all shopping with fewer and fewer companies as well. We're getting much higher percentages of our spending is going to fewer and fewer global corporate companies. Yes, they're wielding huge commercial power. And uh, only in the last day, I've been faced now with the fact that people are looking for multi-factor authentication for emails. And that means that the email is more secure, but secondly, it's giving people more control uh, on who gets access to these things. And one of the real problems to couple with the previous one uh, that comes into the commercial realm again is the step up from the x-ray example I gave you and that is facial recognition now we all know that it's very useful for a police force to be able to detect a terrorist in a football crowd or uh, some dangerous person uh, on a railway station and all the rest of it but it's quite obvious that a tool that can be used to keep us safe can also be used to control us. And it is the fact in certain parts of the world, uh, very invasive, uh, closed circuit television systems with facial recognition technology are being used to supervise and control ethnic minorities. Now you can see that happening. And it was very interesting in the UK here, the reaction of a senior police person when thinking about that said that's exactly what we need in London. And of course, there's been a huge uproar about it. Why? Because facial recognition still makes many mistakes so that people can be arrested even uh, who are completely innocent. And that's another big uh, ethical area, Peter, uh, the business of things making mistakes, because anything that's programmed into a computer is programmed by a, an individual programmer or a group of them. And bias can be built in. And it has been discovered that there are artificial intelligence systems for doing pre-interviews for jobs that people never meet a person they're interviewed and then it's discovered that there's bias against color or race or gender and, and all this kind of thing. And it's very difficult to police that. So what you've got is this, you've got rapidly increasingly sophisticated technologies and history has shown us that the technology always grows faster than the ethical underpinning that should be controlling it and far too little really comparatively speaking has been done in the ethical area which is why we need christians 
certainly in the medical profession using AI, but in all other professions, who are able to enter this dialogue because it is a very difficult area. Now, uh, you've talked about facial recognition, and uh, of course, I think we've all had the experience. I'm often recognized as my brother or vice versa on Facebook and inappropriately labeled or, or he is. But you talk in your book, as well as surveillance capitalism, about surveillance communism, the idea that in some countries of the world, you can walk into a bank, be instantly recognized, that uh, that image is then connected with all your records uh, and and you can even be scored as a and this is happening already as as a citizen as to how compliant and helpful or dissident you are you've talked about ethnic minorities of course but it's much much broader than that isn't it when it is indeed yes the the thing is that certain parts of the world and they're not only communist countries in that sense are moving towards this idea of a surveillance society. And the argument is, if you want real security, then you've got to give up some of your freedom. But the freedoms that are given up are beginning to impinge on what most of us would recognize as human rights. And in some countries, it is the fact that there's a kind of social credit system where you are assessed by your behavior by closed circuit TV cameras. And if they pick up some uh, unacceptable uh, behavior, such as littering the street even, or um, not keeping up with your mortgage, etc., etc., you are scored against. And then the penalties bite in that you discover that your credit card is no longer accepted for a flight or your favorite restaurant or something like this. And you can see that that kind of insidious creeping control can be rolled out all over the place. And people who write about this point out that all these systems are available throughout the world. It's just that in some countries, there's a much stronger centralized control of them than in others. But they're all there. The equipment is all there. It's, it's all available. And I believe in the UK, if you go out into a city, you're on CCTV roughly every five minutes. We've got more CCTV cameras in England than the whole of the United States, which is a very odd statistic. I guess we hope that we've got a less hostile government than in some countries of the world. But this is the worry, isn't it? That, um, I mean, some people will say, well, if I'm a good citizen, I've got nothing to, to fear. I don't mind people looking at my bank account or spending behavior or where I drive my car or, or whatever, because I've got nothing to fear. But I, this is the question, if things, if information is available to fewer and fewer very powerful people and the government turns hostile in the way it is in some parts of the world and certainly has been in history, uh, how a good behavior from a Christian point of view might be regarded as antisocial or anti-state behavior and what that might mean for us in the future. Yes, exactly, because it's not just 
being a good citizen in terms of driving your car carefully and paying your bills. It's when ideology starts to become part of the way in which you're measured. Does this person go to church? Well, if you're in a country where uh, freedom of church access is guaranteed, that's okay. But as you say, if you get ideological hostility, then a visit to a church may mark you down and may start incriminating penalties against you. And the trouble is you've very little redress once you get into the system and have got a red flag against your name. Now, you've talked, therefore, about the importance of ethics. And in your book, you, you talk about some of the attempts of drafting a set of commonly accepted uh, ethical principles that could govern this. Could you talk a little bit about the work that's been done there, how much agreement there is, and especially what Christian ethical principles we might be applying? Well, some people have seriously tried to um, create ethical responses. We ought to bring into that debate the artificial intelligence used in automatic weapons. That's been one of the very big areas. And some of the leading people, think of the late Stephen Hawking or Elon Musk and Jan Tallinn, for example, uh, who are leading players. And they set out in 2017 to at a conference in a place called Asilomar in California. And they got a thousand AI research workers to subscribe to them. And their general principles, I can give you examples. First of all, the goal of AI research should be to create not undirected intelligence, but beneficial intelligence. So there's the question, we want it to be beneficial, but the problem is who is going to define beneficial? For example, highly autonomous AI systems should be designed so that their goals and behaviors align with human values throughout their operation. But what are these human values? They should be compatible with human dignity, rights, freedoms, and cultural diversity. They should preserve personal privacy. Now, all these are marvelous, but the problem with them is not writing them up in a text or a credo, but it's, it's getting people to obey them. And a very interesting statement was made by the chancellor vice chancellor of the university of buckingham a couple of years ago sir anthony selden he says this we are sleepwalking into the biggest danger that young people have faced eclipsing totally the risk of social media and other forms of digitalization the government is not stepping up to the mark that's the uk government and the tech companies are eating them alive, making shamefully high profits, preaching platitudes while infantilizing our young and exposing them to great dangers. AI could be a considerable boon if we get the ethical dimension right. 
but with each passing month, we are losing the battle. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who's a world famous commentator on these things, a transhumanist, he wrote these chilling words. Once big data systems know me better than I know myself, authority would shift from humans to algorithms. Big data could then empower big brother. So it's a very serious area. And you know, we need far more Christian intellectuals who think about these things in the public media. How many do you see in, the, in discussions? The technology gets huge airing, but serious discussion? No, not really. If we probe a bit deeper than ethics, we know that ethical principles are always based on a fundamental worldview. And I think when we listen to the, the, the transhumanists, and, the, and they come in different forms, don't they? But they seem to be driven by a very different worldview than we read in scripture. Um, can you unpack that worldview, uh, what some of the hopes and dreams are of transhumanists and how they contrast with a, a Christian view of the future? Yes, well, it's absolutely true to say that ethics is in large part worldview dependent. The obvious example of that is if I think an embryo is just a mass of cells, that's very different from thinking it is a potential person made in the image of God. Your worldview determines your evaluation of what you are considering. Now, it's pretty evident reading the literature that there's a huge atheist agenda behind a lot of this. Now, I mentioned Yuval Harari as one of the, the main instigators of this, and he's written two books called, firstly, Sapiens, and secondly, Homo Deus. He's not a scientist, he's a historian, but his books have sold in millions. And his worldview is openly atheistic, and he describes what his agenda items, as he calls them, are for the 21st century, this present century. Firstly, and this relates to Menson, the first one is that he regards death now, physical death of humans, as a purely physical problem, and it will be solved by technological means. So we're going to solve the problem of death, by which he means not that people will not die, but they will not have to die. And of course, the hidden agenda is that this would be a treatment for, uh, which would be very expensive and inaccessible for most. But then the second agenda is this. It's a purely utilitarian maximization of human happiness. It's the well-being topic. Now, all of us watching this are very aware that well-being is a major topic in universities around the world and for individuals. What does it mean to thrive? And he says that what we're going to do is enhance human beings and make them better. How? By changing our biochemistry and re-engineering our bodies and minds. And I quote him now because it's important. He says, having raised humanity 
above the beastly level of survival struggles. We will now aim to upgrade humans into gods and turn Homo sapiens into Homo Deus. But he says, think in terms of Greek gods. And he goes on to say that every day, millions of people decide to grant their smartphone a bit more control over their lives or try a new antidepressant drug. In pursuit of health, happiness and power, humans will gradually change first one of their features and then another and then another until they will no longer be human. And some suggest, like Mark McConnell in his prize winning book, To Be a Machine, he says we can and should eradicate aging as a cause of death and use technology to augment our bodies and minds so that we can and should merge with machines, remaking ourselves in the image of our own higher ideals. Now, that is, to my mind, a very big red light that is shining in our faces as Christians. What is that saying about the humans like ourselves that we believe are made in the image of God? Now it's making human beings in our own image. And that image, of course, will be the image of the scientists who've got the technology and are able to do it. How much of this, John, uh, these humanist dreams are really just a, a pipe dream? Uh, th th there are so many aspects of, of humanness, which it, it would seem very difficult to duplicate in any machine or in union of, of uh, human beings with machines. Uh, think about, you, you mentioned this in your book, things like aesthetic sense, consciousness, curiosity, language, relationships. <clears throat> oh, absolutely. I think that without being a Luddite in any sense, I think there are huge barriers in the way of doing anything like this. And it, it really is a pipe dream. One of the main ones is one that you mentioned, and that is consciousness. You see, if they aim to make an intelligent being, then uh, our intelligence god created i believe is coupled with consciousness now the argument goes in two ways here some people say look as long as what we build can do what we want it to do it doesn't have to be conscious for example the diagnostic narrow ai system that's telling you you've got lung cancer doesn't need to be conscious because it doesn't have to be coupled with consciousness. But if we are going to mimic in some sense what we are now, the problem of consciousness will have to be solved, let alone the problem of conscience. But we do not know what consciousness is. No scientist has any idea what a conscious thought is. And we're nowhere near understanding that. And, you know, I like the works of Leon Cass, who was the, uh, possibly still is, he's a leading bioethicist and a, a polymath 
and writes brilliantly, incidentally, about the book of Genesis and its understanding. But he's at the University of Chicago, and he wrote that we we have paid some very high price for the technological conquest of nature, but none so high as the intellectual and spiritual costs of seeing nature as mere material for our manipulation and so on. And he says this, with the powers of biological engineering gathering, there will be splendid new opportunities for similar degradation of our view of man. If we come to see ourselves as meat, then meat we shall become. And I think that C.S. Lewis in the 1940s, he really saw what was going on in his little book, uh, The Abolition of Man. And he points out in that book that man's conquest of nature actually means the rule of a few men over billions upon billions of men. And every advance is a power over man as well as a power won by man. And he issues these prophetic words. He says man's final conquest will prove to be the abolition of man. That this is a very destructive force that's at work. And I think at this stage in our discussion, it's good to begin to question it deeply in terms of what it looks like in light of Christian revelation. Let me make two points and then you can question me about them. The first is this, Harari's program, let's solve the problem of physical death. I want to say to him, Yuval Harari, you're too late. The problem of physical death has already been solved. Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead. And what is more, it not only means that the problem of physical death is solved for one individual, namely him, those who trust him. And this is where I feel that all of us have got a very powerful message to speak into this uh, contemporary situation. To all who trust him, he promised that he would raise them from the dead in the future. And of course, that solves Harari's problem of immortality. Because the difficulty with Harari and all utopian technological thinking is it tries to solve the death problem without facing the sin problem. And Christ dealt with both. So I want to say, look, there's no point in you working to solve the problem of physical death. You're not going to do it by pure technology because one of its prime causes is moral. It's human sin. And unless you've got something to say about that, you're being far too superficial. And the second thing is his enhancement of human beings. Well, what could be a bigger enhancement than the promise that Jesus and the apostles made to us? that when he returns, we shall be uploaded into heaven. If you don't mind me using the phrase, we shall be raised from the dead. And our life is, when we trust Christ, eternal. So that solves that problem that people are trying to solve by expensively having their brains frozen in the hope that one day they'll be able to be uploaded. 
What am I saying, Peter? I'm saying that if only we could see it, we have a very powerful counter message that has the vast advantage of having credible evidence for its truth because it matches the diagnosis. And I think that comes out very strongly in your book as the, the fundamental clash between two very different worldviews. I'm not meat. I'm a being created in God's image for a relationship with him. The answer is not technology. It's redemption. I'm not looking to the scientific or genetic revolution for immortality and perfect health, but rather the resurrection of the body. So there, there are huge differences. And yet there are real anxieties too. Your, your reference to C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, I think of his, his book, That Hideous Strength, which uh, puts much more flesh on the bones of that. But, um, but also this idea of the homo deus, uh, or, or homo deus that uh, Harari and others are, are talking about. And one thinks back to the Tower of Babel when people develop technology that became dangerous and God intervened. So uh, how, how long do you think God will let this run and develop? We can imagine some frightening scenarios, but uh, what do you expect? The how long question is the most dangerous one. The disciples asked it, when, Lord? And I guess Jesus, the question is to what level of depravity? It's, it's very <laughs> difficult. Well, we've already seen in our history the horrific attempt to abolish a race of people genocide under Hitler and under Pol Pot and Stalin and hundreds of millions of people died in the 20th century in the name of atheistic ideologies that were seeking to re-engineer human beings. We often forget that. The crude eugenic schemes, the breeding schemes, all this kind of stuff, they thought they could develop a new scientific concept of man. And it has led to utter catastrophe. But you're right to trace it back because it goes beyond Babel, actually. The original temptation was if you set God aside and go for the products of your minds and satisfying your aesthetic sense and don't bother about God, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. And of course, they fell for it and they discovered that knowledge of good and evil is a very special kind of knowledge that you don't want to have. But that set the hair running and the lie that's been spread all sense is that God, if there is a God, is against human flourishing. And in Christ, we get the answer to that. And we see that it is the lie. But how far it will be allowed to go, we do get hints in the New Testament, not only in the vivid symbolism of the book of Revelation, which of course must stand for something. Symbols are used to describe reality. But in Paul's plain, straightforward language, where he talks about, looks like he's talking about someone in 2 Thessalonians who claims to be God and has got powers that 
are devilish in their instrumentation. And if you put those two things together and feed them into some of the imagery in the book of Revelation, what strikes me is simply this. Max Tegmark is a brilliant physicist and well-known, and he has written about the future of AGI, and he's developed a whole series of scenarios, including one in which a great AI system called Prometheus takes over the world, controls all the economy, and etc etc people cannot buy or sell without being involved with prometheus well when i read that i think look people out there intelligent people on planet earth in the 21st century are taking that stuff seriously well i would like therefore the same people to put aside their prejudice for a moment and have a look at what scripture actually says about the future, because it's eerily parallel to some of those scenarios. And if we're going to take them seriously, why wouldn't we take scripture seriously? Because there's far more to back it up. So it seems to me, and that was one of the things that I hit upon in writing this book, that perhaps it is a vehicle for getting thinking people to take more seriously those areas of scripture that are often regarded as no-go areas because there's far too much speculation about the future and arbitrariness and so on. And that's fascinating. I, I greatly enjoyed reading your book myself and it's a wonderful overview of all the big issues, the science and technology, uh, absolutely filled with facts. But then you go into this contrast between the Christian and the atheist worldview. But then in the final chapters, you really uh, quite boldly uh, go back into uh, Christian uh, New Testament prophecy as well. If I, can, if I can quote from page 206 of your book, we deduce that it makes sense to think that both Second Thessalonians and Revelation speak of the same devil-inspired, anti-God, immensely powerful world leader who will in a future time claim divine honours and deceive the world by false wonders and who will be cataclysmically destroyed by the return of Christ in power and great glory. You, you talk about totalitarian global surveillance state, control of the world economy, or uh, on page 211, in today's globalised world, a world government is an entirely plausible notion. And you say later, for the first time in my life, I think the formation of some sort of world government is plausible, that we have the expertise and technology. So how should Christians be looking forward to this? Uh, what, what should we, what signs should we be looking for? How should we be behaving? And this, does this change the way that we communicate the gospel? It raises lots of different questions. Oh, it does indeed, and they're not easy to answer. My response would be to say, first of all, Christians were told this in the first century. So we should take it seriously. It was a long time, 20 centuries in advance of, of these developments. The second point is, it is only in the recent technological developments that we can see that some of this stuff might be 
if I might put it this way, more real than we'd thought. Less imaginative and speculative, but actually real and going to happen. And that, of course, in itself confirms uh, the biblical record. What I find striking is that when Paul told the Thessalonians about this, he'd only been there for three weeks. And he was already talking to them about this future world leader. And his reason as given was that this, yes, there's a mystery about it. It's very strange, but it's already operating in your society. And what was operating in their Roman society then was the deification of the Caesars. And what he was, I believe, saying to them was, he was saying, look, this is a trend. You need to watch it because it is very dangerous. And I want to project it into the future so that you see what it's going to lead to. It's going to lead to man behaving as if he were God. Now, of course, some of our leading intellectuals have told us that we need to grow up and behave as gods. Harari's telling us that. So we are seeing, in a sense, a much bigger rollout of the idea of the deification of man than we've ever seen before. And that means we need to take it seriously. To put against that, I think the biggest thing is the actual gospel itself and the way in which it's explained to us at the beginning of John. Here is this huge devil-inspired effort to turn us into gods. What's God's answer to it? That God becomes human. It's the exact opposite movement. Man will become God. God becomes human so that he can do something in Christ by which we shall be able, by receiving him through no merit of our own or desert of our own, become children of God with his life. And we need to cling on to that. The more I think about these future scenarios, you will notice in the book of Revelation, they are dominated by the utter resplendent glory of the coming Christ that eclipses everything. And the hope of Christ's return is not a periphery on the Christian faith. I meet far too many Christians who are embarrassed by it and apologize for it. Well, I would simply say that when our Lord was tried before the high priests, he claimed to be the person who would come seated on the right hand of God and come with the clouds of heaven. So he claimed it publicly. He told his disciples he would return. All the apostles said he was returned. And of course, it is the central hope of the Christian church. And we need to talk more about it because there is always a danger with this kind of sinister sounding technology that we begin to become more expert on that than we are in scripture. And my encouragement to all of you is we need to read this stuff through scripture look at scripture afresh think it through see how relevant it is and work out ways of explaining it to the people that are around us secular people and so on choosing our language carefully so it makes sense and that's what i've tried in a little way to do in my book 2084. 
And I think your book is a great example of that. And having read it, I think it would also be something you could very confidently give to a non-Christian friend because it starts with the realities that we see around us and then gradually builds in a Christian worldview and raises these kind of questions about the future. John, I'd, I'm sad that we've run out of time because we could go on a lot longer on this. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you to, uh, to John for making the time and sharing your wisdom uh, with us as we look forward. And we hope to see you again uh, before too long on ICMDA webinars. So from me, uh, Dr. Peter Saunders, uh, God bless you all. And we hope to see you again soon. Thank you.